So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word, and it is our desire to grow in our understanding of it. We pray for your blessing to fall upon this, your people, as they continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. may be seated. John Bunyan was a tinker before he became a preacher, and you don't need to worry, that's not a bad word. Uh, tinker did not make very much money, but a tinker was a guy who mended pots and pans and other household items made out of metal if they were leaking or in other ways they were not uh, very useful. He was not very educated, but when God called him to preach and he went out and started preaching, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands came out to listen to him and were being transformed. In fact, uh, even some of the intellectuals, some of the great Puritans were just transfixed by his preaching. For example, when King Charles uh, got on John Owen's case and say, why would you, a learned man, go to listen to a tinker preach? John Owen said this, I would willingly exchange my learning for the tinker's power of touching men's hearts. He was turning parts of England upside down. Well, that really upset the king, and he was thrown into jail for preaching without a license. In fact, he stayed in jail for 12 years. And people might think, why would God put a person away from the crowds, away from all of that influence, hold up in the stinking dungeon for 12 years instead of getting him out there where he could be useful. If you were uh, back in those days, you might be tempted to think that things were getting worse and worse and that uh, God's power perhaps was not at work. You think of the financial ruin that John Bunyan went through. And you think of not only his imprisonment, but tens of thousands of people that were imprisoned and his first wife dying, leaving him with four children. Mary was blind. And uh, there were so many other disasters that were happening at the time. You might think things are getting worse and worse. John Bunyan did not look that way. He did not look at appearances. Uh, he realized that the kingdom of light was piercing through the, the kingdom of darkness despite appearances to the opposite. In fact, he realized that his very setbacks were going to be used by God to advance his kingdom. And in fact, the, the books that he wrote during this time just exude with that kind of faith. He's just a remarkable man. I love uh, John Bunyan. He uh, claimed God's promise in Isaiah 9, verse 7, that of the increase of Christ's kingdom and of peace there will be no end. 
and uh, Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 18, that Christ would so build his church that even the gates of Hades would not be able to prevail against that church. And so while he was in prison, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, among some other books. And that's a book that's probably sold more copies than uh, any other book next to the Bible, probably had more influence for good upon more people than any other book next to the Bible. God was at work in his life, despite the fact that it looked like things were losing, God was using that very losing to cause his kingdom to advance. Why was Paul allowed by God to be in custody for another two years? He's already been in custody for three years. You might think, a great, mighty preacher, why is God allowing him to be holed up like this? total of five years on this last trip that he's in custody, not able to go out uh, on his own. Well, I think we've already seen hints that these five years are good for Paul, were good for the church, uh, were bringing the gospel into Caesar's household and amongst uh, many of the uh, Praetorian guard. But there's one other reason why I believe Luke crafts this book in this way where he ends uh, his epistle with Paul being holed up, as it were, in this uh, time of house arrest. And the reason is, I think it's a marvelous picture of how God's kingdom grows even while giving all appearances that it's losing. I just think it's such an encouraging picture to end this, psalm, uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, book of Acts with. Nothing can stop the advancement of God's kingdom. Now, there's unbelief all over the place, so he's not denying that there's going to be unbelief. Uh, but I think these last few verses are a nice bookend to the eschatology that Luke started the book with. And uh, this is going to be the last sermon on the book of Acts. And uh, we're going to be uh, using the picture, the big picture, that Paul paints in Romans 11 because I think this is what it's patterned after. Romans was already written before the book of Acts uh, was written. So let's start with Roman numeral number 1. Last week we started to look at the casting away of Israel in verses 25 through 27. And Paul said it's a mystery. It was something that he could not understand why God would, for how many long, long period of time in the future, for how much of a long period of time they would be blind, he didn't know. He said it's a mystery. But he spoke about it very clearly. And right here, let's uh, read beginning at verse 25 again. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. This was Paul's last warning, as it were, that if they don't repent in just a few short years, they would be cast away from God's presence. In Romans 11, Paul words it this way. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now there are four stages to God's dealings of Israel and the nations, and I want to quickly outline those for you. The first stage was in the Old Testament that the kingdom was primarily restricted to Israel. Now there was a, a tiny remnant of Gentiles in the Old Testament, 
uh, that were saved. But even they ordinarily had to become Jews, at least after the time of, of Abraham. Why? We are not told. God is sovereign. He can save whom he wills. And he can harden whom he wills. But in the Old Testament, it was primarily a situation where just Jews were being uh, saved and just a small, small remnant among the Gentiles. Second stage comes after Israel rejects her Messiah in the first century A.D. Now, the prophets actually anticipated this time that there would be a long time in which Israel as a nation would be blind, would be cast away. Several passages that very clearly in detail predict the war against Jerusalem and God casting Israel away. And we looked at that last week, but the same period of time is the period in which there is going to be nonstop growth of the church among the Gentiles. And so God is in control of the lack of growth amongst the Jews, and He is in control of the tremendous growth of the church amongst the Gentiles. This is all part of His plan. The third stage that Romans lays out is that sometime in our future, it's not happened yet, at some point the nation of Israel as a whole is going to become a Christian nation. It's going to repent and uh, uh, that will be called the fullness of Israel. Right now it's just a remnant of Israel being saved. Now a remnant, you know, whether it's a remnant carpet, it's just a small piece or a remnant piece of cloth, whereas the fullness of the cloth at some point is going to be saved, all Israel will be saved at some time in the future. The fourth stage happens after Israel is converted. That's going to usher in an unprecedented time of blessing and prosperity in the world. People will live longer. There's going to be united theology. You're going to find holiness increasing, God's blessings being poured about upon His people. Uh, Premillennialists say this will happen after the second coming. Uh, Post-millennials say it will happen before the second coming. But both of them believe the same thing, that God's victory is going to be achieved in history and incredible blessings are going to happen upon the earth. This is the time when Deuteronomy 28 blessings will be poured out upon all the nations. And so in world history, remnant theology gives place to fullness theology. In the Old Testament, it was remnant, 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 and it's still remnant right now, even though it's growing more and more amongst the Gentiles. But eventually, it'll be the fullness of the Gentiles. That means a majority, or some people take it all, but a majority at least. It's the least you could translate that fullness. And then the fullness of Israel, and then after that, even greater blessings that the Lord pours out. So that's kind of a paradigm I want you to have in your mind that's already in the minds of those who are receiving this book of Acts because uh, Romans has been distributed sometime uh, previously. So in verses 25 through 27, we see the casting away of Israel. Verse 28, we see the anticipation of the reconciliation of the Gentiles. It says, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Now, I want you to notice the words, they will hear it. God guarantees that these Gentile nations are going to be con converted. They will hear the message. Not all of Israel is going to, but the Gentiles will. And it's not just a small trickle because, again, Romans 11 says, Now, if there, that's the Jewish nations, fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. 
He's saying there's coming a time, yes, when Israel is going to be fullness. It's going to be all saved. But he said, even prior to that time, their falling away is going to bring incredible riches to the Gentile nations at some point in history. He says, if that's true, how much more blessing is going to be poured out upon the Gentile nations after Israel is converted? A couple of verses later, uh, he, he says, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world... What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, first of all, I want you to notice in that verse he says, this sinful world is going to be reconciled. He's not going to leave those uh, pagan nations just always being a remnant uh, Christian. It will be reconciled, but it promises something even greater once Israel is saved. Now, this time, instead of saying there's going to be even greater riches that the Gentiles will enjoy, he's likening it to resurrection from the, the the grave he's saying there's going to be such incredible changes and blessings upon this world it's going to be almost like resurrection from from the dead uh longer life animals uh you know being at peace with one another he says there's going to be a transformation uh such as we have never uh, been able to witness before and so, pretty radical changes that God has in store, whether you look at it from the pre-mill perspective or the post-mill perspective, uh, pretty radical. Now, this means to me that the Great Commission will not be a failure. What does he say here? He says, the Gentiles, they will hear it. They will hear it. Verse 28 is not contrasting a remnant of the Jews with a remnant of the Gentiles like some amillennialists make it out to be. That's no contrast. There's, there was a remnant from both. There continues to be a remnant in both, even though it's an increasing remnant among the Gentiles. What he's contrasting is a nation that's been cast aside and nations that will be reconciled. That's what the word Gentiles means. It means nations. You could translate it as nations, in fact. And so that's the contrast that uh, he has in mind. When Jesus calls us to disi make disciples of all nations... He intends the Great Commission to be fulfilled. He didn't want us to stop and say, okay, Lord, we got a small remnant from every nation. No, your work's not done. Get back to work. You've got more to do before, uh, before I come back. The Great Commission needs to be maintained as a Great Commission, not a truncated commission. And He promises we can fulfill it. Why? Because all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. And He's promised, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, on to Roman numeral 3, verses 25 through 27 speak of the rejection of Israel as a nation as a whole. Verse 28 anticipates the reception of the Gentile nations, all nations. Then verse 29 implies during this time the bulk of Israel rejects the gospel, but a remnant of the Jews will believe. Okay, that's a very important part to remember because there are some who say Israel's completely rejected and Paul says, no way, that is not true. Uh, verse 29, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Now you might say, well, what's encouraging about that? He's had great disputes among these Jews over and over again. What's encouraging about it is that there is a remnant who's not believing what the majority of the Jews are saying. Okay, they have been grasped by God's grace. This leads uh, to the dispute in their minds. So it means that Paul's prophecy in Romans 9 through 11 is already happening. As Paul worded it, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite. 
I'm one of those people. I've not been cast away. In verse 5, uh, he, he goes on to say, Even so at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So even though Israel as a nation has been cast away, God's not cast away uh, Israel as a whole or the Jews as a whole. Earlier he said, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. You know, Paul's hoping that will change. He's anticipating a time when he changed. He knows Israel cannot be saved until uh, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So what does he do? He's preaching like crazy to the Gentiles, hoping that the Gentiles will get converted so that Israel can be converted. Or as he words it in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And then he goes on to say, well, it can't happen until the majority of the Gentiles comes in. So he uh, continues, he, says, he keeps preaching. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So God's covenant with Abraham has not been broken. It's continued throughout all time. It'll be uh, fulfilled at one point when all of Israel is saved. But right now it's being fulfilled by a remnant of the Jews being saved. Over the last 2,000 years, there's not been a single year where there have not been some Jewish believers uh, who have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And so it greatly, greatly encourages me when there's people like Reverend James Graveling who feel called to preach to the Jews and he does everything he can to get in contact with Jewish synagogues. This is a very, very important work. And uh, he may be one of the, the guys that you, you, you should be praying for, that God would raise up finances for this man so that he could enter into this full time. It's, it's very rare to see people who have a deep, deep passion and a calling for that. But pray for Pastor James Graveling that God would prosper his work. He's been experiencing debate amongst the, the Jews. Well, that's a good thing. It's an indication that um, God still has a remnant uh, among them, and we can praise Him for that. Okay, number four, Roman numeral four, the victory of God is anticipated in the last two verses uh, of this book. At least in seed form, it's anticipated. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now let's break those two verses down into five parts. First part I've labeled by the phrase in Revelation 22:17, the spirit and the bride say come. That's what Paul's ministry was all about during those two years that he was in that rented house. He couldn't go out very much, but he said come. Come, and people would come in, talk with him, get converted. They would believe. And uh, this is a very important uh, uh, aspect of his faith. He did not expect the church to be extinguished prior to the second coming. He expected it to be growing. And we need to, in every way we can think of, be telling people, come. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ by handing out tracts, by talking with them, uh, by telling them about the transformation God's done in our marriages or in our lives. But we need to be telling people, come. The second thing that I notice is that verse 31 says he was preaching the kingdom of God. We are living in the time of the kingdom. There are some people who think, oh yeah, the kingdom's way off in the future. Well, certainly at least 2,000 years away from Paul. Uh, but it's not something that we're living in. But no, 
in this book, this book of Acts begins with the gospel of the kingdom. It ends with the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, in between, it's that kingdom being advanced. This is not the time where we are surviving on earth hoping that we can escape to heaven. What is the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's perfectly being done in heaven. We're praying, Lord, bring that about now, more and more on earth. That's our passion. And there's a word here that I think really highlights this. The dictionaries define the word keruso that's translated as preaching in this way. To herald for an army or king, to proclaim as a conqueror. Now, if you want a word picture, uh, you could just think of the movie Braveheart where this guy comes riding out on the, the horse with the, you know, the banner that he's carrying. He's a herald, and he's going to give these people the, the terms of um, you know, their, their surrender. Of course, uh, Mel Gibson tells him what for and uh, tells him what his terms are going to be. But in any case, this is what a, a herald does. He will ride out on behalf of his king, king, uh, king, behalf of his king, yes, and say, "Hey, we're invading your territory, and we got good news and bad news. It's good news if you repent and give an unconditional surrender, but it's bad news and judgment if you don't." And that's what the last two thousand years has been all about. It's heaven invading earth and seeking to transform every aspect, every square inch of planet Earth for the glory of King Jesus. Now, verse 31 makes it clear that this message of the kingdom was centered on Jesus. It says, "...in teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, it was not a social gospel devoid of the cross." That's what the liberals uh, tried to preach. They completely changed the message. They say, yeah, we need to do good for mankind. They saw the church doing good. That We need to do good as well. But they don't pattern it after the law of God and they don't use it through the power of the gospel. And so it's a message devoid of Jesus. And it's a, a monstrosity of a message. Usually it ends up in socialism. In fact, I quoted... Uh, a guy um, from England, a clergyman, who was talking about Stalin bringing in the, the kingdom of Christ. It's a horrible message. Now, other people, they've gone to the other extreme, says, we don't want a social gospel, so let's just bring the gospel down to individuals. Now, much better than the liberal gospel, but it too is a truncated version of what Christ is all about. What Paul is preaching is the fact that he's giving all the message of Christ who claims all of life for himself and who plans to redeem all of life and eventually there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. That all flows from Jesus. And he's, he's not leaving anything out of Christ's claims upon planet earth. Fourth thing that I notice about this eschatology of Acts is that it's a message of confidence. I love that. He's preaching the kingdom of God with all confidence. Now if you're on the losing side of a battle... You don't have a lot of basis for confidence. In fact, you're going to be pretty discouraged because you're going to try, but you know you're going to fail. Uh, you're not, not much confidence in that. You know, Paul told, uh, told Timothy, fight the good fight. What's a good fight? Talk to a, a boxer and he'll tell you the only good fight is a fight I win. <laughs> and that's the way it is with us too. God has called us to a fight that He is going to win. We are part of His invincible army that is advancing His glorious cause. And we need to rejoice in that. Rejoice in it. And so it's a, a message of confidence. 
And then finally, it implies that the king that this herald represents cannot be stopped in his victorious advance. And I see that in the phrase, no one forbidding him. Now, that whole phrase is just one word in the Greek. It's the word akolutos, nothing hindering. That's a more literal translation, nothing hindering. F.F. Bruce comments on that word saying, Luke's final word is a legal expression. With it, the record of Acts closes on a triumphant note. New American Commentary says this final word of the text of Acts points to even more, to the unbound gospel triumphant over every barrier of superstition and human prejudice. It's a grand conclusion to a grand, grand book. And so Luke ends where he began. He, he began with the invincible advancement of the kingdom of Christ. He ends with exactly uh, the same message. Now, it's interesting, though, that Luke does not directly and explicitly address the question that he began his book with. He very deliberately begins his book with a question from the apostles. Let me read it to you. Acts 1, 6 through 8, the apostles asked the question, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember that question? Uh, they knew it's only a remnant. It's a tiny remnant. Lord, what's going on here? There's hardly any Jews who are coming to Christ. And they know that there is coming a time in which the fullness of Israel is going to happen. And they're just asking, Lord, is it right now? Is it soon that the fullness of Israel is going to happen? Now, when Christ answer them, answers them, he does not deny the legitimacy of that question. It's a very legitimate question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But instead of answering the question directly, he answers it in exactly the way that Paul does in the book of Romans. Paul says, I don't know when the fullness of Israel is going to come in. I just know that the nations have to be converted first. So this is the answer that Christ gives. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's only when the gospel has gone to the end of the earth that Israel will be grafted back in as a nation by joining the church. Okay, there is only one body. There's not two bodies, church and Israel. They will be grafted back into the church, which we were grafted into as alien branches at one point. And Romans 11 says then this is going to result in even greater blessing uh, to the whole world. So it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Now this victory of the kingdom is hinted at in the very way that this book was constructed. And when we started this book, we saw there's six sections of this book. And those sections start with Jerusalem, then they go on to Judea, then they go on to Samaria, and then Syria, and then Europe, and then finally Rome and beyond. They're being conquered by the gospel. In every one of those sections, they've got the same pattern going on. They've got the pattern of a few people being saved, and then there's thousands being added, and then they begin multiplying as everybody's witnessing and sharing the gospel. And then there's multitudes and many multitudes and myriads in one place, it says that uh, uh, Paul was turning the world upside down. I love that phrase. I wish people would say it of the church right now. They're turning the world upside down. What's going wrong? Yay. Uh, that's what it ought to be. But unfortunately, many people lack the kind of faith that those people uh, had back then. Now, if you look at the last verse of every one of those sections, there's a summary statement that says, okay, the word was triumphing. 
The word was growing. Multitudes were coming. It's a triumphant book when you look at how it's structured. And uh, what he is painting in this whole picture of Acts is by the time he gets to Rome, that the, the crumbling of Rome to the gospel is being anticipated. See, Daniel 2 says that Rome, the final empire, is going to be hit with a stone. It's going to start to crumble. It's going to be a process of time. It'll grow into a great mountain, and eventually that mountain will fill, uh, the, will fill the whole earth. And of course, when does it happen? According to Daniel 2, Rome will start crumbling when Israel is cast away. Okay, we're almost to the year where Israel is going to be cast away as a nation. And the war is a seven-year-long war, and right in the middle of it, the temple is burned and destroyed and all of that kind of stuff, which we won't get into today, even though I love talking about it. So pretty soon is the time when Nero is going to be killed. Well, actually, he kills himself in the head. So the head of this beast is wounded. It dies. And if you look at the Roman historians, they all called Nero the beast. And they say that Rome, that he represented, died. It divided up into different parts. And it took quite a while for it to revive as Vespasian goes back, conquers, and brings the whole empire back together. But during the death throes of this um, Roman Empire, what is happening is that the church is growing so aggressively that even secular historians have said that by the time Constantine was converted, not after he's converted, before he's converted, upwards of 50% of the Roman Empire had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're talking under severe persecution. We're not talking rice Christians, fake believers. There may have been some fakes and tares amongst them. But generally speaking, we're talking about vibrant Christianity going forward. And I wish, I wish, I wish we had the faith of Athanasius and some of those early church fathers. As I've read some of those fathers... They just had an incredible confidence in the power of the gospel to completely transform planet earth. They wanted it for King Jesus. And you know what? Revelation 2 says, any time the church has that kind of a faith, it says, to him I will give power over the nations. Revelation 2, verse 26. And then in the next verse he says, all let them bear the rod of iron that Jesus has in his hands. What does Jesus do with that rod of iron? He smashes the nations, right? They are redemptive judgments. And through our prayers, what is happening is we are connecting our prayers with Christ and He raises that scepter. And so we're a part of these judgments that are coming upon the nations. This is the glorious advancement of the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, the last word of the book of Acts can be true of anyone anyone who has the kind of faith that Revelation 2 through 3 says we ought to have. He says you'll be overcomers if you have that kind of a faith. It guarantees it. So Acts, what a glorious book, an optimistic book. It has incredible vision for the future. But it's also a realistic book. It never pretend, uh, pretends that things are going to be idealistic without problems. No, it shows all kinds of problems, whether it's storms or persecution, being thrown into jail, opposition from Satan. In fact, in the book, it's quite clear, God wants us to lay down our lives for the cause of the advancement of His kingdom. But what an incredible cause that is. It is worth laying down our lives so that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. As I mentioned earlier, Rome was not the first nation. Remember, Malta became Christian. 
But Rome, Armenia, there were nation after nation that began to be crumbling to the gospel in those first few centuries. Why? I believe it's because they took the Great Commission seriously. They believed it could be done. They took the book of Acts seriously. And it's my prayer that every one of us would begin to live out consistently, more and more consistently, the kingdom principles of this book uh, of Acts. The eschatology of Acts inflames my heart. It gets me excited. And I hope it gets you excited as well. But I want to end by noting that you can apply this idea of seeming defeat and yet real victory to your own lives individually. It's not just world history. Sometimes God's victory in our lives is disguised under an apparent defeat. God loves to show His power in the midst of setbacks and reversals. He loves it when we have a faith that says, I know there's a way of escape that I may be able to bear it. I'm just looking for that way of escape. We're looking with, with faith to the future, not with, with frustration. And uh, God has an eschatology, not just for this world, He has an eschatology for your life. Now, what is His eschatology? Eschatology just means doctrine of the future. What's God's doctrine of your future individually? It is not defeat and misery and hopelessness and a guarantee that Satan's almost going to extinguish your faith. Far from it. It's an eschatology of victory. And I want to read just a sampling of scriptures that give God's eschatology for you individually. Psalm 60 and verse 12. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is He who will tread down our enemies. Daniel 11 verse 32. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for you. We're just a little Gideon's army. What could we do? Yeah. <laughs> With God, we can do valiantly. Amen? Um, Romans 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what if you're having all kinds of evil things happening to you? You're an overcomer, right? Overcome evil with good. Take a stance of victory. He's already won the victory. You're not hoping for it. You're standing in the victory that Jesus achieved for you. You're claiming from His throne everything you need to be able to be overcomers in the midst of evil. 1 John 2.13 I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Have you learned to overcome the temptations of Satan and his demons? See, in John's congregation, his young men had learned. They've already, they've learned how to overcome the wicked one. We need to be in that position. Okay, 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Next chapter. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Have you been born of God? Then you overcome the world, is what he says. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He says this victory applies to every one of you. Whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, whether you're a man, a woman, it applies to all of us. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, not just in the first century, He says, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is saying this is a personal eschatology for every generation till the end of history, even against all appearances. 
Now, doesn't Romans 8 promise us victory against all appearances? It absolutely does. Romans 8, 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He is saying, do not give up. Do not get discouraged. Just as Jesus is invincibly advancing His cause in history, He is invincibly advancing His cause in your own life. And even if it looks like everything's going against you, you can be an overcomer. You can become more than an overcomer. And that's why the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 15 say this, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sometimes we let the obstacles and the mountains and the giants in the land dictate to us what kind of faith we can have. Don't look at that. Let only God's promises dictate your faith. Uh, several years ago, I was uh, flipping through an illustration book, and I ran across an illustration that really struck me. It was a guy that studied, I don't even remember what the, uh, uh, what the, the name of that science label is, but he studies ants. Uh, that's all he does. How would you like a job that your whole life is just studying ants, you know? But anyway, he loved it. And uh, he was describing the behavior and all the intelligence of these ants and he was describing this one ant that was carrying a straw that looked way way too big for that ant to be able to carry but he's doing just fine and it's weaving around and taking this straw forward and it comes to a big crack in the earth that it cannot get over and the ant is standing at the crack and looking it just seems like it's thinking and then it lays the straw down over the crack walks over on the straw, picks the straw up, and continues to walk on. And I thought, that's exactly what we need to do, right? Anytime we've got obstacles, anytime we've got these discouragements, these big cracks in the road ahead of us, what we need to do is say, Lord, you've given us your promises, and I'm laying that promise across this crack. I'm by faith going to walk across, even though it looks scary, and I'm going to persevere in my pursuit of holiness. I'm going to persevere in advancing your cause down here below. If we would have that kind of a faith, incredible things could be done on planet Earth. Man's biggest burdens that we tend to shrink from often become the very vehicle for our success. See, if Martin Luther had not had to been taken a prisoner by his friends and holed up in Wartburg Castle much to his frustration and chagrin because he had work he wanted to do. And they say, you're not going over there. You're staying in this castle. We're going to protect you. And he's thinking, what do I do? If he had not been holed up in that castle, he probably would not have had the time to translate the German Bible, I mean the Bible out of Greek and Hebrew, into the German, which was a remarkable feat. It, it, it just catapulted the, the Reformation forward. So instead of getting frustrated with his imprisonment, he looked at it as an opportunity. He laid the straw down. He walked across that crack and he triumphed in the face of defeat. Everybody's thinking, oh, it's a big defeat. No, it was a triumph of God. Had Helen Keller not been blind, 
We would not have the, the, the large volume of poetry and hymns and other things that she had written. Uh, if Frederick Robertson had gotten his coveted commission in the British Army, he really wanted that commission and he could not get it, he would not have become the, the famous and the, the powerful preacher that he was. If John Bunyan had not been put into that prison, it's probably unlikely that Pilgrim's Progress would have been written because there are many evidences that flowed out of the adversities that he was facing. And so millions would have been deprived of the incredible blessings uh, of that book. If Paul had not been on house arrest in Rome for two years, the seeds of Rome's eventual fall to the gospel may not have been laid. What we can count on as we live out Acts 29, you didn't know there was an Acts 29, did you? Um, see, this is not the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many people wonder, why doesn't he tell us the rest of the story? I want to know what happened to Paul. That's immaterial to this story. The story is crafted in a way to let you know the acts of Jesus Christ have not stopped. They continue to go on. And so as we are living out Acts 29, Acts 40, Acts 100, whatever it may be, we can have a confidence that He who is at work in you will do it. He will accomplish it. He will advance His cause invincibly. And so I want to end this series with the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Can you believe that, brothers and sisters? Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Luke ends this book with the word, nothing hindering, so that we can have a confidence that nothing can hinder the kingdom of God advancing in your life. If you will have the faith that this book calls for, if you will have the faith of Revelation 2 through 3. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for all of the saints from ages past that you have raised up as uh, testimonies, not just Paul, but Athanasius and Augustine and uh, little maids who were thrown to the lions and yet through their testimony won the hearts and the souls of those who were seeking to kill them. Uh, Father, you have... Uh, continued your glorious advancement of the kingdom of your Son. And Father, we want to be a part of that advancement. We do not want to be like the wilderness generation, stuck up on a shelf, worthless, not doing anything. We want to be like the mighty men of valor in David's army that Gary talked about earlier. We pray, Father, that we would have hearts of passion. You have done so much for us through your Son and through your Holy Spirit. And we want to lay down our lives for you. We want our lives to count and we pray that this church would count for all of eternity in the things that it is doing. We do not want to do anything in our own strength, but only by the power of Your Holy Spirit working through us. And so, Father, we ask, send Your Spirit into our lives. Transform us and help us to be mighty soldiers of the cross. And this we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.